Good morning, church family. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It's page 1 of the Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please feel free to take that today as your gift uh, from us. Hear now the word of the Lord. Sorry. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Thus says the word of the Lord. Thank you. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you for what it tells us, not only about you, but about us, so that we can truly know ourselves and know how we are to relate to a God so holy, so perfect, so infinite, so eternal. So God, we pray that your word would would be illuminated to us by your spirit, that we would not be, uh, Lord, dulled by words that we have maybe heard many, many times, Lord, but that we would become alive to the truth of what the scriptures say, Lord. God, as I present the word, I pray that you would just help me, enable me, God, make me a, a, a right vessel to carry your word this morning, God, without any corruption from my own sinful heart, Lord. Lord, that would distract from the message that you want to give to your people. And Lord, I pray for any hindrance in the people that they would uh, have hearing ears and attentive spirits and that they would conform their, their lives and their hearts and their desires to what you want, Lord God. And so we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good to see you guys all here after the snowpocalypse last week. Um, I have been doing this a long time, and seriously, I hit a record last week. That was the fewest people I have ever preached to. I kid you not. It, uh, I mean, we had some online, of course, but it was a it was a very very sparse crowd. So for the online people, I tried to make it look I was like I was speaking to vast sums of thousands and millions and whatever, but not so. One of the things we did last week was we received our missions offering and uh, because of of uh, just the the snow we had a very small crowd here and uh, and we didn't quite hit our goal but I'm happy to report to you that even before you gathered this morning um, we have hit our missions goal so all of our missions uh, missionaries have, have uh, the checks have already been sent and they will be paid in full um, of the things that we have pledged to them and I'm really happy to report that to you also want to tell you a couple of you have, have come up to me and had gotten our email about that shortage and said, hey, I'm, I'm writing my mission check today. And um, anything that comes in over that will just be applied to our next missions offering. We never redirect those funds whatsoever. So thank you so much for your faithfulness. It is making an impact throughout the world, um, an impact that, as I've told you many times, I've witnessed with my own eyes uh, in visiting with our missionaries around the world and here locally. And so um, I'm, I'm really grateful uh, for your generosity. Um, well, today 
today, um, we're going to do something a little bit different. For today, some of you may be aware of this, some of you may not, but today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, This was first celebrated several years ago, in fact, on January 22nd, 1984, um, by President Reagan's proclamation. Um, It was the 11th anniversary, um, the day that he proclaimed it, as of the Supreme Court's landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states. And so for the past 37 years, on this Sunday, the third Sunday of January, um, churches have paused um, and to consider what the inherent value of human life is. And, and I don't know if this is something that you've ever considered, but this isn't just about um, things like abortion. This is a huge subject. And so today we're going to join with our brothers and sisters across the country, and we're going to uh, focus on this topic this morning. So today what I want to do, the way we're going to do this, is we're going to consider four questions, and uh, we'll go through one by one. The first question that we're going to consider is what does it even mean that human life has sanctity or that it's sacred? Secondly, um, we want to consider in what ways do we or the culture we live in deny the sacredness of life? Thirdly, we're going to consider how Christians should be active in upholding the sanctity of life. And then lastly, we're going to to consider together what is the best evidence that we have for the sanctity, the sacredness of life. John Calvin said this, he said, We cannot properly know God unless the knowledge of ourselves be added. And what he means by that is it's not enough to have a perfectly polished theology. You must understand in relation to God, who God has made you to be, what human life means, its deep uh, intrinsic meaning in order to understand uh, God. He, he says that we, when we know our origin, when we know our purpose, when we know our design, it is only then that we can really relate to and genuinely honor God. And so without knowing these things, we are are somehow hindered, if not fully unable, to cherish or protect the lives of others. Instead, what we do is we judge those lives, we judge other lives uh, by an inflated view of ourselves, or we condemn them for the threat that they pose to our convenience or our desires. We must know who we are in order to know who God is and how we are to relate to others of His creation. John 1.4 says this, it says, in him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the reason I share that passage with you is because I want you to know, for everything else we say today, that God is a God of life. So let's fix our hearts this morning on celebrating that reality. Are you with me? So the first question that we are going to pose to ourselves is what does it mean that the human life has sanctity? To say that something has sanctity literally means that it is holy or that it is sacred and that it is it has ultimate importance. The root of this word comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. In being holy, what we're saying is that life is set apart from lesser common things. 
Life is completely unique. And let me be more specific. Human life is completely unique. May I give you an example? Those of you who have been to my house or looked at my Facebook feed know that I love my dog. His name is Luther. And he's a cute little white fuzzball that is just adorable and brings great comfort to my soul for whatever reason. I love my dog. But what I want you to understand this morning is the most seemingly insignificant, unworthy human life is of infinitely more value than my dog. That's the point to say that life, human life, is sacred. I love the idea of flourishing rainforests. I love the idea of ending, ending the hunting of whales. I think whales are magnificent creatures. I, I don't want them to be hunted. But no human life is worth less than every whale or, or, the, or one acre of Amazon rainforest. In fact, human lives are worth infinitely, infinitely more. Can we all agree on that. And this is why that we as human beings, as a culture, are shocked when we flip on the news and we hear about a brutal murder or when we hear of someone in a, an official position uh, oppressing the innocent. This is why we respond in anger to the news of a senseless rape or the molestation of a helpless child. Life is far too precious in our eyes to ignore such things. Amen? But what is it? What is that quality of life that makes it holy? How does human life, compared to all other things, arrive at this lofty status where we say this is different, this is separate, this is holy, this is sacred, this has sanctity? First, above all else, life is holy because God created it. So think about with me Genesis chapter 1. Most of you are familiar with the account of God's creating the world. We hear that God created blades of grass. He created towering redwoods. He created soaring eagles and small chirping sparrows. He created giant great white sharks and he created tiny little minnows. He created massive elephants and scurrying ants. And he did all those things in the exact same way. Do you remember what he did? He spoke. He, he just spoke the word, let there be, and they were formed in all their massive diversity just by the decree of God. God desired, he spoke, and boom, there they were. But it wasn't the same way with humankind. Completely different method that God took. When God created man, now think about this. Think about God in his majesty. Think about the descriptions that we see of him in Isaiah chapter 6, throughout the book of Revelation, some places in Ezekiel, other places, the description of the majesty of God. Now imagine that God in all his majesty, infinitely holy, kneeling down in mud and dust and forming the man with his own loving hands. Not a spoken decree. He did not say, let there be a man. He said, let us make man in our own image. So what I want you to understand is no matter how your self-esteem is this morning, no matter what you view about yourself, you are of infinitely great worth, more than you can ever understand, because God made you. God designed you with his own hands. 
But it didn't stop there. The very next thing God did that he did not do with any other forms of life on the planet, he breathed into the man's nostrils. And the Bible tells us, we just read it, that the man became a living soul. Now you might read that and understanding modern medicine, you might think, okay, so God gave him CPR and his respiratory organs began to function. That is not what the scriptures are telling us. When it says that God breathed into the man, it's not saying that he gave him CPR. It's saying that he inspired him. It's that same word that we see when the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. He literally breathed into the man. He inspirited the man. And what that means is he placed something of his eternal essence into the into humanity and setting it apart, making it holy. He literally gave the man a soul, a spirit, and that made him different from everything else on the face of the earth. And ladies, don't despair. With the same loving care, he formed you and your kind from the man's ribs, shaping it into the perfect companion to live by the side of the man in perfect harmony. It was a beautiful thing. And next, not only is life sacred because God created it, it's sacred because God is sovereign over it. Life is God's to give. And it's God's to dispose of. And he has never relegated the authority to give or take life to anyone else. Deuteronomy 32:39. God says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. In the Psalms, David said that all the days ordained for him had been written in God's book. No one can add to them or take some of them away. Now we know that oftentimes people do take life and end life. It doesn't mean that when... God is not in control when a life is taken. That is not at all what we're suggesting. Sometimes, Scripture makes clear, God uses circumstances and even people to bring about His will or His justice. And such is the case when a government sends troops to stop a murderous despot in a war or when the state enforces justice for criminals. That is God's, uh, the Bible teaches us that that is of God's ordination. But even though God is sovereign over our times and the means of our deaths, holiness demands that he punish the one who takes the life of another. After murdering Abel, you guys might remember that story, uh, God spoke to his brother Cain and told him this. He said, what have you done? Listen to these words. They're terrifying. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Life is sacred, not only because God created it and because he's sovereign over it, but because our lives have a purpose. Did you know that? Did you know that you're not a cosmic accident and your life actually has a purpose? And I'm going to tell you this morning what that purpose is. Do you want to know? The, your, the purpose of your life is sacred because it is a gift from God so that you can have the time to, to spend in learning about and in believing in God, to conforming your lives to His will and to give Him glory and praise. See, from an eternal perspective, our lives are very, very short. 
most of us, by today's statistics, will live somewhere between 70 and 90 years, you know, liberally. We'll live 70 to 90 years is kind of the going rate right now. And in that... We, you know, that time is given us is to, to spend our lives seeking God's face, living in the light of His countenance, um, because that is a very short time where, where our spiritual lives will be formed, which will impact us for the rest of eternity. And eternity, if you're not familiar with the concept, is forever. It never ends. A trillion, trillion, trillion years from now is just the beginning of eternity. Westminster Shorter Catechism so famously tells us that man's chief goal in his life, I'll put that part in parentheses, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, even throughout eternity. So what I'm saying to you is if you ignore God now, if you say, hey, i got stuff to do, dreams to accomplish, agendas to complete, and I'll think about God when I'm dead, let me tell you something, if you ignore Him now, you will not enjoy Him in the sweet by and by. Because God did not give you eternity to know Him. God gave you etern- He gave you life to meet Him, to know Him, to build a relationship with Him. You're definitely going to know Him if, you, if you've taken advantage of that in your life. You're gonna, definitely going to know Him in eternity. But that's not where you begin that. You begin it here. Our lifetimes are given us to prepare for the next world. Did you know that? And some of us are just burning through life with no thought of God, no thought of the majesty that awaits us in His presence if we'll just submit our lives to Him now. And what a shock it'll be when we awake on the other side and any opportunity we had to to feed on His grace is gone. David, several times in the Psalms, made this point very clear. He says in Psalms 30, verse 9, he says, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? See, life is sacred because it's your opportunity to know and begin to know God. It's very important. Next. So that was first question. Next. How do we... And the culture we live in often deny or even attack the sacredness of human life. And sadly, the ways are many. If God is a God of life, it stands to reason that those of His enemies, and when I say His enemies, I'm talking about all of us in sinful humanity, those who have resisted the will of God, would be promoters of death and resistant to life. But defense of and reverence for human life is a Christian distinctive. What do I mean by that? To deny life's value with your words or your actions makes your, your confession of a, uh, as a believer. To say that you're a Christian and yet to deny the sanctity of life makes your confession of being a believer very, very suspect. Can anyone claim to be a follower of Christ if he has no care for others' lives? Or even for their own. Now, some of you might think that this is so obvious that it's absurd, what I just said. And, and you look around the room and you say, well, I doubt very seriously that there's anyone here that's guilty of actively murdering people. If, we, if you are here, we'd like to call you to repent before you murder us. 
But you may assume that there's no one here who's actively murdering, murdering people or oppressing the helpless or victimizing people that are disadvantaged. And I want to tell you that's good. We're glad that this isn't a church primarily for serial killers. We're glad of that. But there are ways that we can all, in our humanity, in our sinfulness, passively ignore the value of a life. Let me just ask you some questions. How do you personally treat the poor? Are you a generous person to people in need? Do you wish harm on your enemies? Either the ones at work, the jerk that sits next to you on his computer, or the ones that are across the world. When injustice is blatant and people are mistreated, do you speak up or do you just mind your own business? All of these things can display a disregard for the holiness of The inherent holiness of life. I mention these things because there are few things than than the things like I mentioned. That's certainly not an exhaustive list. There's few things uh, than the things like I mentioned that can harm our testimony before the watching world more. I remember after 9-11, in all of our political fervor, all of our patriotic rather fervor, it was common for even patriotic Christians to voice their desire for the destruction of the entire Muslim world. They were hoping that they would be banned from our country and annihilated in their very own. And this is sad... Because if you know anything about the world, if you know anything about world religions, if you know anything about um, the the state of, of life in most Muslim countries, Muslims need the hope of the gospel desperately. Desperately. And Jesus told us that we are to love our enemies. Not wipe them out, but love them. Now, don't get angry with me, especially, you know, if you've served in the military or anything. I understand. I'm not even for a moment suggesting that there are not times, I'm not suggesting that there's not times where nations need to take military action. I get that. But if the Bible says, listen to me carefully, patriotic Christian, if the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and he says it twice in the book of Ezekiel alone, if it says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, should we? Should we delight in people dying and going to hell forever who never knew Jesus? Shouldn't we have been, no matter what the nation had to do, no matter what the military had to do, shouldn't we who were called by the name of Jesus, who love Christ, shouldn't we have been strategizing to reach Muslim peoples with the gospel as people needing Christ, both here and abroad? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. You guys, most of you who are, you know, pretty conservative Christians probably thought I was going to go right into abortion. Here's what I want to tell you. This is the, the epicenter of my entire message to you this morning. If you and I are not holistically pro-life in our lifestyles of love, forgiveness, and the proclamation of God's world toward the gospel-starved world, of God's word rather, towards the gospel-starved world, we will never, ever be effectively pro-life in our confrontation of abortion, euthanasia, suicide, or sex trafficking. 
If we're a bunch of mean, hateful uh, people who uh, raise the bar of politics above the bar of the gospel, we will never be effective in those other, more culturally heinous crimes. Jesus said that people would know that we are Christians by this one evidence, that we have love one for another. And so I ask us, I ask you, I ask myself, I ask us this morning to be honest with God, does such evidence of your Christianity exist? If people were examining your life, could they say, you are a Christian and I know it because of the love that you have for everyone else? It's only after examining our heart's motives and the actions of our hands that we can speak up against these other more obvious, more heinous cultural sins. If we don't examine ourselves, what we're going to do is we're going to wind up hating abortionists. We'll hate unwed mothers. We'll hate sex workers. We'll hate radical Muslims. Instead of saying, like Paul said to the Ephesians, pray also for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim Proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So often, I address this constantly in our church, but so often we are so consumed by a political agenda that we forget that Christ has commissioned us with a gospel agenda that overrides any other agenda. So if you are a Christian, if you're a pro-life Christian, if you're a pro-life Christian conservative, I want to ask you this morning directly, what fuels your pro-life fervor? Is it a political agenda, a desire for vengeance, or is it an open door for the gospel? Do you want to advance your own agenda? Do you want to execute vengeance on your enemies? Or do you want to make sure that everyone hears the word of the living God resulting in them having the the opportunity to accept Jesus and become followers of Him? Now, that being said, Christians must speak up and we must take appropriate action against a moral evil like abortion the slaughter of the innocent children in the womb has no place in a sane civil society yet according to the world health organization an estimated get these numbers an estimated 40 to 50 million babies are killed every year around the world through abortion 40 to 50 million abortions. This corresponds to approximately 125,000 abortions per day. Now what I want you to understand is this year, where we're standing at this time, that there have been about 2 million abortions around the world since January 1st. 2 million children that will not live because they've been aborted in the womb. For perspective, just so you can understand a comparison, since, since America began in the, in the war uh, for, the, for the independence, for the Revolutionary War, all the way to today, only 1.3 million people have died serving in the military in, in the United States. 1.3 million versus 40 to 50 million babies a year dying because of abortion. And for what? For why? For what reason? What noble reason do they die? For convenience? For many people, 
it's becoming sadly apparent in our culture that the murder murder of children is nothing more than a form of birth control. Giving rise to the hashtag, shout your abortion, celebrate your abortion on Twitter, brag about it. You got nothing to be ashamed of. What once was a symbol of shame and regret has become a badge of honor for many women. And, And in theological circles, folks, we call this total depravity. When your mind is so corrupted by sin that, that, that you, you celebrate the, the destruction of innocent life. I grew up listening to Fleetwood Mac, the rock band. Some of you know them, know their songs. And Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac recently said last year, she said, if I had not had that abortion, I'm pretty sure there would have been no Fleetwood Mac. Actress Joan Collins, you guys remember her from the 80s, she said of her abortion, it would have been absolute career death for me to have done that. What she means is have a child. It would have been unthinkable for me to have a child. Now think about those statements. If these women who had become pregnant, had decided to have their children, the world would have been denied the blessing of Fleetwood Mac and the body of Joan Collins' acting work. But I want you to seriously consider what, no matter how big a fan you are of those two people or any others, I want you to consider this. What have they done but sacrifice children, which the Bible says are gifts from the Lord, on the bloody, stained altar of fame and success? Is what they have done any different than some pagan in the South Pacific throwing an infant into a volcano to appease their gods? Because I'm here to tell you it is no different. And there is blood on their hands. But even in cases like this, my larger point dictates that I tell you we're not called to hate Joan Collins. We're not called to hate Stevie Nicks. We pray for them because there's many, many more like them and we should pray for them too. That they will see the truth, that they'll recognize what they've done and that they will ultimately find grace in the face of Jesus Christ. I know many women, I've had the opportunity to know many women across the years in ministry who have had abortions and I've, I've loved watching how that the weight of guilt, the weight of, of, of the reality of what has transpired was released and relieved by the grace of Jesus Christ. What a powerful thing. We have a message that nobody else has that says no matter how far you think you've gone, that God will still receive you with grace and forgiveness. What a great benefit to to us all. This leads to our third question. How should Christians respond to the culture's denial of the sanctity of life? This is where the rubber meets the road for us. First, we should be people who pray. I didn't say first we should be people who vote. I said first we should be people who pray. We should pray actively, aggressively that this national curse in our land ends. In the 1860s, that we were a people, we were a nation who enslaved other people. On the basis of their skin color alone, we made them human chattel, we, we enslaved them. 
And for decades before, this was just the reality. This is just what we did. Certain people just just were, were seen as that was their station in life to be slaves for other more important, more privileged people. And by the grace of God, and sadly through a bloody, bloody war, our most bloody war in all of, of, of our history, we put a stop to that injustice. We, we, we drew a line in the sand and we said, this cannot be ignored anymore. We need to pray that America awakens to this injustice. Because nobody but the, the biggest wackos that you can imagine ever look back to the 1860s and say, man, I wish we could have slavery back. We've, God, by the grace of God, we've awakened to the injustice of that. May we all... In every state, in every city, awaken to the injustice. May your grandchildren look back and say, I can't believe you, you people ever did that. I can't believe that you did that. I'm so glad that's over. We should pray for the national cursed end. We should also pray for our leaders to have an awakening of conscience. That they see the evil of it and use their positions to put an end to it. We should pray for women who are scared. And that's, that, that is most women who have abortions. Women who are scared and don't know what to do. But we should also pray for wicked women who know exactly what to do but refuse to do it. We should pray for the church, our church, to be a safe harbor of compassion in a stormy sea of politics. We should pray for God to supply innovative minds and the necessary resources to provide options for women who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy. Options that do not involve the termination of a life. We should pray for pregnancy center counselors and godly health care workers who are giving righteous counsel in the interest of protecting life. We should pray for adoption agencies to find foster and adoptive parents to help others make the decision to choose life. And on that note, I've cried this out for so long, but I hope that someday, like like throwing a hook into the sea, a fish is going to land on it, somebody's going to grab onto this. But I hope that many of us would honestly ask the Lord if fostering and adopting a child is a practical way that we can provide real solutions to this problem. I understand that not everybody can. Ginger and I considered it seriously for two or three years and finally decided that that was not what God is calling us to. And, and to be honest with you, it broke our heart. But for those who can't, don't, don't say, well, I, I can't do that, so I, there's nothing I can do. No, no, no. Consider volunteering at a children's home or a crisis pregnancy center or, or, or even yet something that we are doing. Stand with us on Tuesdays or other days to pray and peacefully protest at the local abortion clinic. Be ready to share the gospel with anybody, worker or, or, unwed, or a, a, you know, unwed mother, whatever, who's going in there. Be ready to share the gospel. And and be a voice, publicly state that this is a moral evil that must be addressed. All of us can get educated about human development and about the, the horror of abortion procedures so that we can talk intelligently to our friends who have not been persuaded about abortion's wickedness yet. There are many resources available for free online for you to do that. And let me tell you something. I I would never, I I haven't ever, and I would never tell you how you should vote. 
But you should consider prayerfully getting involved in the public arena. I have, personally, a zero-tolerance policy for political candidates who support abortion. It makes no sense to me. I, I cannot personally turn a blind eye to the plight of millions of slaughtered babies in favor of lowered taxes or a cleaner environment. I can't do it. Why? Because I understand the value that God places on human life. Lubbock recently had the nation's largest abortion provider return to open up a clinic after an absence of several years. And we must not, as the, as the people of God in Lubbock, we must not ignore that reality. On May 1st of this year, the citizens of Lubbock are going to have an opportunity to vote for Lubbock to be a sanctuary city for the unborn. It's going to effectively outlaw abortion in our city. It will give uh, the, the, some legal uh, uh, things, uh, some mechanisms in place that will, that will uh, greatly deter um, people's willingness to go through with abortion. Now, obviously, I'm not going to stand here just like I just said and tell you how to vote, but I hope that you will all participate in that election in a way that brings glory to God. And lastly, I told you I wanted to give you the best evidence for the sanctity of human life. Human life is sacred because it is the only thing for which Jesus Christ died so that men and women could be saved. He did this to demonstrate God's love and to show His power. In fact, the Bible tells us, speaking of life, that you and I, we were not sick, we were not wounded. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet that God made us alive in His great mercy in Christ. You know what that makes God? The most pro-life being there is out there. God is seriously pro-life. God is a God of life. John 10.10, you all know it. You can probably quote it without even being on the screen. But the Bible says the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God is pro-life. Through Jesus Christ, there is grace for murderers, for adulterers, for gossips, for liars, for thieves, for swindlers, and even for good little church boys and girls. There's grace for us all through Jesus Christ. But don't forget there's also grace for abortionists and for women who are victimized by them. Paul tells us where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No one is beyond the reach of grace. Aren't you glad? If you haven't placed your trust in Christ for forgiveness that you so desperately need, today is the perfect day to do that. There may be some sin in your life, some hidden sin that you think has got to be beyond mercy. A shameful thing that you would die if anyone knew what you'd done. But I'm here to tell you that if you focus on your sin, you will most certainly die in it. But if you will just raise your eyes and look to Jesus, you will certainly live. Romans 10.13 tells us, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not certain people in certain categories of more acceptable sins. No, no, no. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. So today can I encourage you, no matter where you are, no matter what your story is, to take his hand by faith. He promises in John 6 that he will not cast you aside or turn you away. And I say this morning, may all praise and all glory be ascribed to the Lord of life. Can we stand together? I'm going to invite you now to come to the table of the Lord and um, receive the elements. And let me just mention, we sometimes we don't mention this, but I just invited some of you to come and know Jesus to give your heart to Jesus, to to trust Jesus. I am not calling you to some religious action, uh, some religious ceremony, some religious position. I'm I'm telling you to believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins, not for sin in general, but for your specific sins. He died for you. And that that, um, he's calling you to put your trust in him, to not trust your goodness, not trust your best thinking, not trust your strength or your beauty, but to trust only in him. And if you have not done that this morning, I'm going to beg with you, I'm going to plead with you, not only to do it, but until you've done that, don't come to the table. This is nothing, um, but a, I've said this before, but a snack for you, and, and that's not what we're about. For us, this is the remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. For us, it is the promise that we are feeding on Jesus. It is the promise that, that His presence is with us when we are gathered here around the table. These things, for someone who, has, who is rejecting Christ, mean nothing. But oh, how we would love, how we would love for you to put your trust in Jesus this morning. But before you come to the table, would you just pull me aside, pull Pastor David aside, pull Pastor Paul aside and say, hey, I kind of want to talk to you this morning. I, I think I might need to make a decision like that before you come. And then we'll, we'll tell you the best we can how to proceed. But for the rest of you, I would like to invite you right now just to come and receive the elements and then go back to your seat and we'll take them together. For those of you that are believers, I'd like for you to pause a moment before we proceed with these words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. And I want you to consider the words that I just said in consideration of those who may not know the Lord. And I want you to ask the Lord to make all of those realities very tangible to you. Today we remember the Lord's suffering. Imagine if you can the wrath of God that was poured out on him on the cross as his hands and feet were pierced, his his head crowned with a crown of thorns, beaten mercilessly with a whip, People pulled out his beard, punched him in the face, spat upon him. And all of that was a reflection of what you deserved in your sin and yet were spared because Jesus took it on on himself. Consider that in remembrance as you take these elements. Consider also the promise of Jesus' presence. Where two or three of us are gathered together, he told us to take this supper when we're together, that Jesus is right here. This is a powerful, powerful sacrament for the church because with it along comes the presence of the Lord. Do you have prayers that you're praying that you want God to answer? 
The presence of Christ is here to answer your prayers. Do you have questions that you are wrestling with? The presence of Christ is here to answer your questions. Do you have fears that you need relieved? The presence of Christ is here to relieve your fears. Do you need a transformation in your soul? Do you need sin to lose its grip and for you to grow into the image of Christ? The presence of Christ is here to make that happen. And lastly, we take this cup and this piece of bread as a, as a, a reminder that Christ reigns until he comes. We are proclaiming his death. The place where last week I said that he was crowned as king of kings. And we remember that. And so over all the other things that you consider as you hold these earthly elements in your hands and consider divine realities that they represent, I pray that you would remember that over your life, over our nation, over your family, over your work, over your school, Jesus is king. Let's pray. Lord, bless these elements to us in the ways I've just described and many others, God, by your miraculous power and your divine will. Amen. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake together. If you would now place your hands in a receiving position, I want to proclaim the Lord's benediction over you and send you out with a blessing. Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.